On the top of this sermon, there's a, several words about what to remind myself of, but one of them says TONE, all caps, exclamation point. Melissa reminds me your tone matters. She says that at home, but it's more about the sermon. So those of you in, the, in my, Matt's class this morning, she does talk about the sermon and critique it. She's a vicious critique, actually. I'd rather uh, have her sitting out, or have T- Devin Swindle sitting out here or somebody like that than, than Melissa. But she says, just watch that tone, and I am paying attention to that as I go back and watch them. And this is really important for a sermon like this one, to watch the tone I give it. How many of you grew up with those really, really vicious hellfire and brimstone sermons? You raise your hand, yeah. Many of you did, and I don't ever want to return to the day when that was the steady diet all the time of the church, but I don't want to be part of a church where that's never in the diet either. Something of it has to be said, and the only reason this morning that you can sing these songs that we've sung with such enthusiasm is that they're true and Jesus saved us, that we are in need of grace and we've got it. But do you know what happens to people who don't receive it? If we don't talk about that, we will forget what it was like to be lost. And we will forget what it's like, what it is right now for people who've never responded to this truth. And we can celebrate heaven and sing about it as if, when we all get to heaven. But listen, the all there is not everybody. The all there is everyone who's responded to the gospel, but there's a lot of people in the world who've never responded to it, and that's not their truth. And for some reason, Paul, in this passage that we're talking about today, wants us to know, he wants to remind us what happens to the unbeliever. And don't just say, well, all I gotta do is get together and sing about heaven. No, it's not all. That's not all you need to know. You need to know what's gonna happen to the unbeliever, church. Don't just celebrate your salvation. Remember what happens to people who don't have it. They're the ones the church exists for. We exist for the benefit of the people who are outside there who are lost and separated from God and they don't have this treasure of heaven we've been singing about. And Paul wants to do that. Listen, I think Paul is just like me. I don't think he likes talking about hell. Uh, The the itineraries he gives, we're going to look at them this morning, about what's going to happen exactly on that last day. Every time he talks about it, except the one today, every time he talks about it, he just talks about what happens to the believers. Rise up to meet the Lord in the air. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he doesn't mention in those texts, but what about those people who are not Christians? He didn't like to talk about it. Well, he's talking to churches and believers, so he doesn't need to list it. But today, today in 2 Thessalonians 1, he says, you need to know the full itinerary of that last day because you rising up to meet the Lord in the air, as wonderful as it is, isn't going to be the experience of most. And he wants you to know it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning of verse 5, this is evidence, the suffering of these Thessalonians for their faith. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you 
and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in the saints and to be marveled at among those who believe because our testimony to you was believed to this end we'll always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and for every work of faith by his power so by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you and him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ that's the word of the Lord this shouldn't be the first thing you talk about this hell thing shouldn't be the first thing you say to people It shouldn't be something we talk about as if we relish it, as if we just can't wait to see this thing transpire. That's not how, and so I'm writing on here, tone, remember your tone. Let me tell you four reasons in this passage why you as a believer need to be aware of what happens to the unbeliever on that day. It's unpleasant, and let's not talk about it all the time, but you must know it. Heaven isn't great because it's heaven only. Heaven is also great because it's not hell. And that's the alternative. The first reason you need to know about hell is this, to remind you of why you were motivated to respond to the gospel in the first place. Do you remember the day? Do you remember that? And every day we gather and take the Lord's Supper, we reminded of the day when we came to a knowledge of what Jesus did for us and we, we reenact it right here. We reenact what Jesus did. We also reenact what we did right here as we gather. Now, for the Thessalonians, we have to go back a little bit. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is the churches around them started telling Paul, you won't believe how the Thessalonian church has responded to your gospel. The kind of reception, they turned from, to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They, they completely changed their lives around. How they used to live, believing in all these idols and living godless ways, they turned around and now they're following God, waiting for his son from heaven. How do you explain people who know that they're going to have to change their entire lives, the way they think, the way they live, the way they believe? How do you explain that they're going to completely turn their lives around and follow the gospel rather than God's around them? He says, because they believe in the Son from heaven that he raised from the dead. And listen to how they describe him. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You know why they were willing to change? even though it would present a lot of trouble? Because wrath is coming. Don't preach the gospel as if, listen, it's all good news. It is good news, but it's in response to the bad news. The bad news is, y'all, the wrath of God for sin is going to come. And it's going to be awesome, and it's going to be final, and it's going to be so emphatically, visibly clear. But through Jesus, we are rescued from it. You, by responding to the gospel now, will be rescued when that day of wrath comes. This isn't something we add later on. This is part of the gospel that we preach. Judgment is gospel. Heaven and hell is gospel. And what the gospel is, it's your rescue from the wrath. 
Here's how Paul put it in Romans 2. They're hard hearts. They're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. All your sin, every bit of it. God keeps accounting of it. And it piles up in this big pile of wrath, right? And God's going to just dump it on you one day. It's piling up. He's keeping a record. And he's going to render to each person according to, what, to his works. If people are patient and well-doing and glory and honor for God, immortality. Eternal life is theirs. For those who are self-seeking do not obey the truth. They don't obey the gospel. They won't. And you will suffer, right? There'll be wrath and fury. There is wrath coming. But the gospel is a rescue. Now here's the thing. And I think this is something that we got to remember all the time. You, when you, somebody says, are you saved? The real thing about this is, what are you saved from? Are you saved? Somebody walks up to you at Walmart and you're supposed to say yes or no. But I want to ask sometimes, what, am I, what do you mean by saved from what? What are you saved from? What is so worthy of being saved from that it's worth every Sunday morning of your life getting ready and coming up the hill to worship? What are you being saved from that is so significant that you change your entire life, the way you think and the way you live? What is so significant that I should be motivated to obey this gospel, to be immersed and make sure I enact that same kind of life in my life? What is is it that is so compelling that saved is the right word and here's the answer the hell that awaits you're saved from something you're saved from something and Paul says I want you to remember the fate of the unbelievers so that you remember what you are saved from you've been rescued those of us in here who gather around this table and we sing these songs, we sing them because we're rescued. If the day of wrath comes right today, we're rescued by Jesus because of the gospel of what he's done for us and we've obeyed it. That's the truth. Don't you ever forget what you're saved from. That's very important. And it's worth all the trouble of hanging on to that way of life until then. That's what the Thessalonians need to know. Your rescue on that day, then, is worth being obedient for every day till then. And it's true. How many were motivated? How many of us are motivated to, be, to, to, to respond to the gospel by a fear of hell? That's a lot of us. But can I tell you in our world that we live in, permissive parenting, consequenceless living. I think that's a lot of the reason why the gospel has fallen on hard times. People don't think they have to pay for what they do, the decisions they make, and the lives they live. They don't think they ever have to pay for it. It just gets paid for some other way. But that's the truth of, the, of, of salvation, too. The reason you should obey the gospel is so that you get to experience the joy of rescue and sing the songs that we've been singing, because not everybody gets to sing them. Number two, it clarifies the nature of our God. I want you to notice verses 6 and 7 of 2 Thessalonians 1. God considers it just. I don't know what your favorite attribute of God is, but we all have them. You might like God's grace. Every one of us should because we're dependent on it. We're beneficiaries. I love God's grace. That ability to, to just kind of uh, to, to absorb our weaknesses and our failures. Yes, I love his grace, but that's not all God is. I love his love for us. God is love, and he does. He loves us deeply, and like a great job Grant did during the Lord's Supper, the, de the depth and the width and the length and the height of the love of God. It's great. I love that. He is love, but that's not all he is. 
And we, also, we often pick up one attribute of God and we blow it up and said, this is what God is all. But God never let us do that. He said, don't make images and don't imagine in your minds what you think I am. Trust my word revelation, the word picture. There is grace. There is love. There is mercy. There is kindness. There is holiness. There is justice. There is expectation. It all goes into God, and he's all of it. Don't pick one attribute to the exclusion of another. And in this particular passage, he reminds these Thessalonians to hang in there for the persecutions by, by remembering God's justice. And here's how God defines justice. You see it on the screen? Back up if you would. Repay affliction. Repay with affliction those who afflict you. The justice of God demands God is going to repay those who hurt you by hurting them. Does that bother you? Does this bother you? God is going to repay affliction with affliction. Does that bother you? Does your grace... Let this fit. Does this verse and this understanding of justice fit with your concept of God? Is God keeping track? Is he keeping track of my injustices to other people and I'll have to repay for them? It sure sounds like it. And he says, and he's also going to grant relief to those of you who are afflicted and to Paul himself as well. Whatever justice means, whatever your idea of justice fitting with grace, if your idea of God doesn't allow for justice, your idea of God needs to change, and you need to make some room and put a packet in there, a little spot in there for God's justice. He's perfectly just, and God is going to repay people who afflict other people unjustly, who do not repent. He is going to repay them with affliction. That's his idea of justice. You'll see on the screen Romans chapter 3. I'm not going to read it, but here's the argument he makes. God has to be just, perfectly just. He can't let a single sin go unaddressed. We often let little slights against us, and rightly so. We just kind of let them sweep them under the car, but no big deal. God can't do that with single sin, not a perfectly just God. And yet, he wants you. He can't stand sin, and he can't let sin go unaddressed, but he loves sinful people. So what does a just, perfectly just God do when he loves people and wants to be in fellowship with them, but they have a problem with sin? What does he do about that? I cannot let sin go unaddressed, but I love people who do sin. What can I do, God says? Well, he comes up with two plans. And here, you get to pick. You will pick one or two of these. Plan A, pay your own tab. Now, finish this sentence with me. The wages of sin is death. So you sin, you die. You sin, you get separated from God. That's, just, that's justice. You sin, you deserve death. You, you, you pay up with your death, and that's it. That's the, and people have this option. You have this option. But this would mean every human being is away from God for eternity, and that wasn't acceptable. But how can he stay perfectly just and then justify us? Well, that's plan B. Plan B is somebody else picks up the tab. A couple weeks ago, we were at Cracker Barrel, and I found out Rick Baker picked up the tab for us. and So we get to walk out without paying, right? And nobody comes after us, and nobody 
tries to arrest us or anything because somebody did pick it up. It's a great thing, right? But, but if I try that today and Rick isn't there, they will come after me, right? So it's plan A is you pay your own way. Plan B is somebody else picks up the tab. There was this one guy who entered history. God sent him from heaven. He entered humanity, and from within humanity, he lived a sinless life. And then he said, even though I've lived a sinless life, I still want to pay the penalty for sin for everyone who ever did sin. And his name was Jesus, and it's the gospel gracious justice. Justice is still served. Your sin is paid for. It's just not paid for by you. You don't get away with your sin. None of us do. Don't think that God just says, you're my child, so I'll just sweep it. No, no, it had to be paid for. He had to be just, but he did it through Jesus. And everyone who's in Christ, everyone who's baptized into Christ and lives that life, that person is in Christ and somebody else picks up the tab. You walk away free because of him. That's plan B. Those are the two choices you've got. Now for the Thessalonians, they discovered plan B, and they jumped on it, and that's the way they're living. But they keep preaching the gospel, which is how to get into Christ, how to do plan B, instead of having to pay plan A themselves. As they preach that, the Thessalonian people around them are rejecting it. And, and yet, listen, when you preach the good news, it offends people. And you're like, why would that offend people? It's good news. Yes, but before you accept the good news, what do you have to admit? What do you have to admit before the good news can be applied to you? The bad news that I am an enemy of God and I am in trouble. And a lot of people don't like hearing that. Oh, I'm just fine. I'm fine. And when they hear the gospel, they hate it. And so as the Thessalonians, who are plan B people, are preaching that gospel to the people around them, the plan A people around them say, we don't want gospel, we don't think we're in trouble, and we can't stand you telling us we need it, and they're persecuting them for it. That is what's happening. So here's, the, here's what he then goes through in 2 Thessalonians. He then says, let me tell you about how plan A ends up. If you choose to pay your own way, pay your own tab, here's what it's going to look like. Now, as we go back to 1 Thessalonians 4 for a second, here's the itinerary of the last day. If Jesus comes at 1 o'clock today, this is going to happen. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud voice and the archangel and the trumpet call of God. The dead in Christ will come out of the graves and meet the Lord in the air. Then the rest of us who are still alive but are Christians will join and meet them in the air. We will all meet the Lord together in the clouds and we will be with the Lord forever somewhere, wherever he goes after that. And I don't know where that is, I'm just following him. All right, so there's that. That was chapter 4, but the problem is you notice that you don't know anything about the unbeliever. But now in 2 Thessalonians 1, here's the new itinerary. Here it is. These are the new details that he puts in there. He says, I want you believers to know what's going to happen to unbelievers. And here it is. The Lord himself will come down from heaven. That's the same. In blazing fire with powerful angels. Now he's accompanied. He's not alone. He's got fiery angels. He will punish those who do not know God. Oh, now we get another side of that last day. They're going to punish those who don't know God. The next line is parallel. He will punish those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord. You've got to know God through Christ 
in the gospel in order to, to spare yourself this. this is, again, this is plan A, where it ends up. You remember that. When does that justice come? When the Lord comes. And this is what happens. They will be punished with everlasting destruction. It's going to go on and on and on, and that word destruction is not really defined here. We're not given a description. Jesus gives a description with fire and worms and darkness and gnashing of teeth. I don't know what all that means, but it's going to be everlasting destruction. This next one is a little more graphic. He says, shut out from the presence of the Lord. No one has ever, no one has ever been outside the presence of the Lord. So this is new territory. And I don't even know how God's going to do it because by definition, there's no way to be outside the presence of the Lord. But he's going to create a scenario where he's going to have this space right over here. I don't know where it's going to be, but he's going to have this space where God's presence has no bearing on the people who are in it. All that's good, all that's happy, all that's joyful has been sucked out of that like a vacuum cleaner. Everything that's communal that involves fellowship with other people, gone. Nothing of God's influence exists here. This is, as C.S. Lewis says, those who go to heaven say to God, thy will not mine be done. Well, those who go to hell, God says to them, thy will not mine be done. This is what you always wanted. Hands off me, God, I want to do my own thing. He says, fine, for eternity, you're going to exist where the presence of the Lord is not. That is the most awful thing that I can possibly imagine for hell. Shut out from the majesty of his power. Everything that sustains the universe is in God's hand. But when he puts this, he creates this scenario, this space over here, God's power can't be called upon. You can't talk to him. You can't have him influence your life. His power is out from you. You're just here by yourself and powerless. That is what's going to happen to the person who does not know God, does not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And Paul wants you to know that. Next screen is what happens to the believer. Dead in Christ rise first. Live in Christ will be joining them in the air. We'll meet the Lord in the air. Jesus will be glorified in his holy people. There's going to be like this pep rally like you've never seen before. We're going to celebrate knowing Jesus, that the, the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith is right there in our presence. And we're going to marvel at him as people who believe the testimony. And we'll be with the Lord forever. He wants us to know this itinerary. If your understanding of God can't stand this picture of the last day, both the good and the bad, and you say, I can't believe in a God like that, let me tell you, you are believing in a God that's not the God of the New Testament. If you have to erase all this stuff, you find it unpleasant, no, I can't accept that God, well then you can't accept the God who is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one that we are worshiping this morning. This stuff all fits. His grace, his perfect grace includes this picture. His perfect love includes this picture. His perfect kindness includes this picture. His understanding of justice includes this picture. You must make room for this image if you're gonna follow the God of Scripture. And that leads to two other practical things. One is this. This is how we endure. Next screen. 
There's a problem with this picture, and the Thessalonians stumbled upon it, and Paul is using this passage to explain it. There's a time when you suffer injustice, and then there's a gap, and then there's a time when it's paid. So here's the Thessalonians who are living the gospel, living for God, and they're being mistreated, persecuted, put on trial for their faith. Long over here, God says, one of these days they'll be repaid, suffering, they'll suffer the justice of their actions. But there's a gap of time in between, and it's a long gap. And this is just not academic. For those of us who are white, middle-class Americans who really don't suffer much injustice, we find this peculiar. It's not really a big deal, and it's like, ho-hum, let's go on with the rest of the passage. With the rest of the people in the world who are suffering terrible injustice, this becomes an issue. If you've never been mistreated by somebody and never seemed to get justice for it, this, just, this is just mere academic for you. But for those of you who have been, this thing is your lifeline. Paul, Paul describes this, God puts a, 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 you can call it a grace period where that long gap is, but the problem is it's not grace to the people who are afflicted. If you're a victim of injustice, this goes on forever. This feels like, where is God in all this? We have to work with this. Where is God in this? It should be that if you do something sinful, you pay the consequences now. What happens when there's a long gap between it? We notice it in the world, people living godless lives, living the most horrendous, godless way, and it seems like nothing bad ever happens to them. They just live that way, and you're like, I know that's sin, and God hates it, and we, we even preach it. God's against that, and they look at us, and they make fun of us because they're like, I've been living that way for years, and I've never suffered anything for it. I know, and that's very difficult for the church. I say to young people, you need to be sexually pure. What if they're not? Probably nothing to happen. Most likely, you'll lie and not tell the truth. Nothing much will happen. Now, we can tell the awful stories, get pregnant and get diseases and all that stuff, but I've got to tell you, there's ways around it. Our world has found ways around it, so the thing is, what, how do, that long gap becomes a problem. If every time they, they, they were sexually impure, there was this electric shock, <clears throat> oh, that'd be great, right? That'd be great, but it doesn't happen that way. And here we are preaching, it's bad, it's awful, it's harmful to you, and they're like, I did it, and nothing happened. And this creates a problem, doesn't it? It creates a problem in our world, it creates a problem in the church. What do you do about the gap? What do you do about this? The man who molests his daughter all those years, finally she gets out of the house, but nothing bad ever happens to him. No justice ever happens, and she struggles the rest of her life trying to figure out how to deal with this injustice. What do we say to her? The married woman, beaten by her husband for so long, finally he leaves, and it just seems to go for greener pastures, and she's left picking up the pieces for the rest of her life. She's living in that gap, and the victims in that gap get resentful of God. Why don't you do something and keep your word? Meanwhile, the perpetrators just get to thinking, well, hey, I got away with it, and God doesn't really care. Why does God allow the gap? And this is where he fits in. One more attribute of God we need to talk about. It's called patience. God's waiting in that gap. He's waiting. And he wants us to cooperate with him and wait with him. And what does he say to us how we should live while we're in this? I want you to forgive your enemies. 
I want you to love those who do awful things to you. What? How in the world in that long gap where I'm suffering and you're not doing anything, how am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to forgive and turn the other cheek and it just keeps getting hit and hit and hit and hit and you're telling, when are you going to do something? That's what the souls under the altar in heaven are crying out in Revelation. Here's how you survive it. Perfect justice is coming. It will be perfect. It will be complete. It will be emphatic. And for those of you who've never suffered, this part of the sermon becomes merely academic. Just ignore me for a minute. But you'll need to hear this if you ever suffer injustice. Here's how you survive the gap. You trust that justice is coming. God's perfect in his justice. Mine is not. You stub my toe. You step on my toe. I don't want to just step on your toe, eye for an eye. I want to, like, chop your kneecaps off, right? Because I'm just, I, I have an overinflated sense of what your injustice does to me. God's got perfect justice in his hands, and we can trust him with it. And here's how, I've got to say this as in hyperbole as much as I can, but you hear Paul say this in Revelation 12, we don't take vengeance, we leave vengeance to God. Do you notice that there is vengeance? It's not like we're saying we don't want vengeance, we just want God to sweep it under the rug and just, in that final day, God will go, oh, you know, this was all a game anyway, so those of you who did awful things to other people and never responded to me, oh, I'll let you get in anyway. That is not how it's gonna be with a perfectly just God. He can't do that and be faithful to his character. The only way I cannot do vengeance is to trust that God will in his time perfectly. I can forgive my enemies only if I know God won't. Let me say that again. I can only forgive my enemies only if I know God will not. I will love them like God wants me to. I will forgive them as I want to. And by the way, my forgiveness of them doesn't let them off the hook. It feels like it, and that's why it feels unjust to forgive. But you are not the one who has them on the hook. Their owe is to God. And God still has the hook as long as they've never repented of it. You may, repent, you may forgive, and God's asking you to do that for your sake. He's wanting you to do it for your sake. But the hook is still in them. God's got it, and God's going to see to it that justice is done. And because I trust him, I can, in the gap time, simply forgive and not take vengeance. Many people will say, it's because you believe in a God of judgment that people are so violent. But can I tell you the opposite is true? The reason I cannot be violent is because I know God will ultimately judge and I can leave it in his hands. But you see nations of people who are unjustly treated and they think justice will never come. They don't know about the God of Scripture who's going to make it right. They don't know about that and they think judgment will never be done. They have got to take the vengeance for themselves. You don't have to. God will see to it better than you can. So when you have a difficulty, and I talk to people this all the, way, all the time, I have difficulty forgiving this person who did something horrendous, and they tell me the story, and I'm like, I don't know how you forgive. Well, I do know how you forgive. You forgive now, but God, you know that God's not going to forgive unless they finally respond to him 
they're not going to be forgiven by God. And because of that, you can. Strange, isn't it? Finally, verses 11 and 12, he says, in light of all this, to this end, we may pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. I want you to continue planning things that love the world. I want you to continue doing good works in the world. And do you know why you do them? Church, we better know this. You know why you do them? You do them to reach the lost. We don't do this to give ourselves a good reputation. We don't do good works to make us feel good. We do good works to reach the world. We do good works so that they see our works and they give glory to our Father in heaven, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to continue doing good works toward your loved ones. I want you to continue doing good works toward your enemies. I want you to continue to do good works in in the eyes of unbelievers that you can draw them. We want to reach the lost. The purpose of all our good works, if it's pack a sack, don't just do this because we've always done it. Don't just do this because it makes us look like a good church. Why don't you do this to get the attention of unbelievers and an opportunity to present to them the truth so that they turn from unbelievers to believers? If that's not the reason we're doing it, quit doing it. There's a world that's lost and we know it. We know what we're saved from. We know what we're safe from. We know the justice and character of God, and we can endure because of what we know is here. But the fourth thing, this last one is, we want to reach the lost. There's one thing, even your enemies, even the people who wrong you, there's one thing we want for them more than justice. We want repentance. Before justice catches them, before justice comes and claims them, Would to God that something we do causes them to repent. Would to God that somehow they come to know the truth of the gospel and they can be rescued from that wrath. I deserved it as much as they did. And in fact, who's the one person you know of who persecuted Christians and God's patience caused him to turn? Does anybody know what his name is? He wrote the letter. He persecuted too. So we end with the itinerary, and I want you to look at it real carefully. This is what happens on that day to the people who are not gods. They don't know God. They do not obey the gospel of our Lord. Those are parallel. They have not, they have not responded to the gospel. I don't mean they haven't heard it. They may have heard it. This is not talking about people who have heard it. This is not even talking about people who believe it. There are plenty of people who believe the gospel who have never obeyed it. If you want to avoid this, this awful experience of everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and shut out from the majesty of his power, if you want to avoid all that, here's what you do. You come to know God through Jesus so that you obey the gospel. You join him in his death, burial, and resurrection and baptism, and you rise to walk a life that is patterned by that same thing, which is why every time we gather, we remember what he did and remember what we're supposed to do. And as we do that, we have this assurance that this is not our fate and Instead, this is. Next one. We get to glorify him in the skies. We get to marvel 
at this one who died for us. And how did we position ourselves for this? By who, believing the testimony of Scripture. We know God and we've obeyed the gospel and that testimony that's been told us through Paul and then that testimony that's shared by so many in this room, it just bears witness to us of the truth and we respond to that and we will then be with the Lord forever. And apparently, Paul and Jesus and God and the Spirit who inspired the Scripture wants us to know this and thinks that if we know not only what happens to us as believers who've responded to the gospel, but what happens to the people who have not by knowing both sides of the story, we will be more thankful for our salvation than we've ever been. We're not just singing about heaven because it's a glorious place. We're singing about heaven because there is an alternative that we don't have to experience. And every week we remember that and it gives us new joy and vigor every single time. He seems to think if we know both sides of the story, we'll remember why we responded to the gospel. We will remember the nature of our God in all its complexity of being a just God and we'll be able to endure all sorts of mistreatment. And finally, we will do whatever it takes to reach the unbeliever with the truth so they don't ever get to experience that. I wonder if it's true that by knowing both sides of the story, all this will happen. If you believe the story, if you believe what we've talked about this morning, what's written in 2 Thessalonians 1, we'll see if that's all true by the way each of us lives our lives this week. Let's see if it's true. And if you've never responded to the gospel, you don't know God and you've not obeyed the gospel, please hear this. I don't delight in this description. This church doesn't want to preach hellfire every Sunday. But this church will not refrain from preaching it when the text says it. Because it is the truth and it's a destiny I don't want for anybody in here. So please obey the gospel. And if you've not, this morning's a great time to do it. Today is a great day to do it. And now is a good time as we stand and sing together.